that we do that. And I love the fact that, think, think about how that little five to seven minutes every week begins to shape the hearts and minds of those children regarding church and their pastors and what this community is for them. Um, it's a place where their pastor gets down on their level and reads a story to them. They're aware that church is for them, that we've given consideration to them. I, this is not my idea. This is Matt's idea. Um, uh, I, some of us have maybe had different experiences growing up in church where the pastor was the big scary guy that you actually kind of didn't want to cross paths with. And uh, I'm really thankful that, I th- that we're cult- the, the culture we're creating here for the kiddos is, uh, is one that we're I honestly, I think it's a lot like Jesus, right? Like he said, let the little children come to me, and they knew they were safe with him, and they knew that he loved them, and, and he, we're safe with him, and, and uh, he loves us too. If you would, take your Bibles and open them to Exodus chapter 26. I know we've got a number of guests with us today, and so thank you so much for coming and for all of Kayla's family and friends that are here uh, this morning as well. Uh, it's a joy to, to do a baptism uh, on a Sunday morning. Is it warm in here this morning? Nod your head. Yeah, okay, so can I get... Mark or Will or somebody to maybe nudge the AC on for us. Thank you. Um, I'm warm, but I'm always warm on Sunday mornings. Um, We're going to look at Exodus chapter 26 in just a minute. Because we have so many guests with us this morning, we're going to step back for a second and we're going to review where we are, why we're studying the book of Exodus, and kind of what's going on in the book of Exodus. Some of you are You've known Bible stories your entire life, and others of you maybe aren't quite as familiar. Jay, if you would cue up that video for us. Um, and, and so in the book of Exodus, this is the story, many of you know, of Moses, of God delivering the people of Israel out of bondage from the enslavement of the nation of Egypt. Pharaoh, King Pharaoh, mean, bad, representative of the evil one, of Satan, has uh, the people of Israel in bondage. And God calls this very unlikely man, Moses, to come and be the one who will now deliver God's people out of bondage, and God does use Moses to deliver his people, and they go through the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is destroyed, and now they begin their time of wandering through the wilderness, and we've met with God on Mount Sinai, and God has given them these 10 instructions along with other commandments, and then now God is doing something in chapters 25, really through the end of the book, where God's just giving a lot of instructions about cubits and curtains and this sort of thing. What's God doing in this last half of the book of Exodus? Well, as we get a running start at it this morning, let's kind of start at the very beginning and uh, remember what's going on here in the book of Exodus. The first half of the book of Exodus tells the story of ancient Israel being rescued from slavery. And when people say the Exodus story, those are the chapters they're referring to. But the book has a second half where Moses gives the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these instructions about building a sacred tent. And what links these two halves together is this crucial story. The people of Israel, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They find themselves at the foot of this mountain called Sinai. And here, God's presence comes dramatically down in the form of a violent storm cloud. Now let's stop a second and talk about this concept of God's presence because it's really important for the rest of the book. At the beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, humanity was in God's presence. They had this close relationship with him, and it was good. But humanity rebels, and the relationship is fractured, and access to God's presence is lost. But God promised Abraham that he would restore his blessing to all of the nations, and that includes this restoration of relationship and access to God's presence. So here at Sinai, God's presence is now right here in front of them, and it's actually quite frightening. And he's here to invite Israel into this unique and close relationship with him. And the word used to describe this relationship is covenant. It's like a legal agreement between God and Israel. And it's unique because up till now, God hasn't asked Israel to do anything in return, just to trust him. But here on this mountain, God is going to ask Israel to do something. A lot of things, actually. He gives them a whole set of laws. that It includes the Ten Commandments. And if they obey these commandments, they will become the people who will represent God to the nations of the world. Like a priest would. Yeah, in fact, that's what God calls them to become, a kingdom of priests. And this is all connected back to the promise to Abraham that his family would become a blessing to the nations. Okay, but obeying these laws is going to be difficult because... There's a lot of them, and they set a really high standard. Though if you think about it, I mean, of anybody in the world who should be able to do it, I mean, it's these people. 
who experienced firsthand God's grace and his power when he rescued them from slavery. And, and they agree to obey the terms, but then they refuse to go into God's presence because it's, well, it's still a bit frightening. And since the people won't go up, Moses goes up to the mountain by himself to meet with God. But God still wants to be with all of his people. And so he says, okay, if the people won't come up here to me, I'll come down off this mountain to be with you all. And that's why he orders Moses to build this elaborate tent as a place where God's presence can be among his people. And that's why the next thing we get is seven chapters of extremely detailed architectural blueprints for this tent. It's really, really really long. But every detail is important and has some kind of symbolic value. For example, there's all this Garden of Eden imagery inside the tent. And it's to remind you that when you're in the tent, you are in God's presence. Then we get another six chapters describing how they built the tent, which is really just repeating the same blueprints word for word. Now let's back up because before the tent is finished, there's this super important story. Moses is coming off the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the blueprints in his hands, and he finds Israel breaking the first two commands of the covenant. Don't have any other gods before me and don't worship idol statues. Right, and so here we are, immediately after agreeing to the covenant, they're throwing this ritual party, they're worshiping an idol. And so God says to Moses, you know what, this is, this is not gonna work. I should just wipe these people out and start over with you. But Moses reminds God of his promise to Abraham and pleads with God to spare them, which is a really weird conversation. Why would God need to be reminded of something. Yeah, it does seem odd, but this dialogue is inviting us into God's experience of grief and pain due to Israel's actions, and he really could walk away. But instead, this God chooses faithfulness to his own promises, even though he knows it's going to cost him. So we come to the end of the book. The tabernacle's built, God's presence comes down off the mountain to fill it, and in the final scene, Moses goes to enter the tabernacle to be in God's presence. But he can't. He's actually not able to go inside, and that's how the book ends. Why can't he go in? That was the whole point. So when Israel worshipped the golden calf, it was like a slap in the face to God's faithfulness. And so Moses can't just waltz into the tent like everything's just fine. There's a deeper problem still in this relationship. Will they ever be able to fix the relationship and go into God's presence? Well, that's what the next book, Leviticus, is all about. Hey, this is John. And okay, this is so that, we believe the Bible that gets us... That gets us to where we are today, uh, and a little beyond, obviously. Exodus chapter 26, I'm going to read Exodus 26 for us. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen, and blue and purple and scarlet yarns you shall make them, with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain shall be 4 cubits, and all the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for the tent over the tabernacle, 11 curtains you shall make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, 4 cubits. The 11 curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple the five curtains by themselves, and six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is on the outermost uh, outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. 
and you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. Okay, we're getting close to halfway through. And already some of you are like, I'm going to tune back in when he's done reading this passage of the scripture. But remember, if you've built a house before, you didn't just ask the builder, build a house. You had ideas, you had plans, you had blueprints, and they meant something. Verse 15, you shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together so that you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames of the tabernacle for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons, and for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, 20 frames, and there 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames, and you shall make two frames for the corners of the tabernacle in the rear, and they shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top, at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood for the five frames of the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar halfway up the frame shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for the holders, for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. Okay, so verse 30 is summarizing and saying, here's how you're going to make this tabernacle for me with these curtains and these bars and these clasps and these loops and uh, these coverings of goat skins and, and goat hair and, and animal skins covering it. And, and look in verse 30. I'll, I'll, I'll note this again later. But God is not only giving words to Moses on how to build it, but when Moses is up on the mountain, God is showing him something. Verse 30, Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. Okay, so Moses didn't just go and write down stuff. Whether Moses is getting a heavenly vision or whether God is showing him a model, like in some way, shape, or form, Moses is seeing the details for this. Now, verse 31, we're going to continue with a curtain-like thing, but verse 31 and following, God's having giving instruction on a very different kind of curtain. You shall make a veil. When you think of the word veil, what do you think of? You, you might think of a, like a bridal veil, something that's intended to conceal. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. Notice verse 33. You shall hang the veils from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there with the veil. And the veil shall, read the next word with me, separate the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place you uh, yeah the holy place from the most holy place you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place and you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table and you shall put the table on the north side you shall make a screen what does a screen use to do? Again, to, to conceal or, or to limit something. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. Exodus chapter 26. I might be one of the few pastors in the history of the universe to actually preach a sermon 
on the curtains in the tabernacle. But I want to do, when, when I do something like this, I'm not trying to be cool or trying to be novel. Brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to show you is every verse in this book is good and for your good. And there's a reason God has put it, put it there. Father, please help us to understand your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I hate no trespassing signs. Most of the time, I hate no trespassing signs. And those of you who are looking at me and grinning right now, you know why I hate no trespassing signs, right? Because often when I see a no trespassing sign, I have a rifle slung over my shoulder or a shotgun in my hand or my bow in my hand, and the quarry that I am in pursuit of is on the other side of that no trespassing sign. And I think, ah, man, I'm not allowed to go where I want to go. I want to go over there. I want to pursue that. I'm not allowed to go over there. Now, on occasion, on occasion, when you know the right people, some of whom are seated in this room, on occasion, when you know the right people, that no trespassing sign no longer applies to you. Brothers and sisters, when you know the right person, the no trespassing veil of the temple is wide open for you. That's the point this morning. My main point, I've worded it differently than I just did. I like the way I just said it better than I actually have it in my notes. Sin separates, but a sacrifice will save. I'm sorry for the, all, all the S's, but that's what I came up with. Sin separates, but a sacrifice will save. This morning we're talking about the camping structure that God has built for himself while the nation of Israel is camping in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And God knows that his people are in little tabernacles and God chooses to come and tabernacle amongst his people. He builds a tent for himself. God is camping in curtains. Now this is a tent like no other tent, right? God is camping in curtains, but this this tent was a pretty special tent. Now, I'm going to surprise some of you here this morning because I want you to know that this tent, this tabernacle that God built would easily fit in this room. Now, I don't I think it might be a little taller. These these ceilings aren't 15 feet, I don't think. I'm I think these are 12. I wanted to measure them ahead of time. I think it's about 12 feet from the floor to the ceiling. So it would have been 15 feet. But the the back row here is about 45 feet long. Okay, so from Donald over here to Mr. Peavy is about 45 feet. And then you come in one, two, three, four, about five rows in. So we're Norma all the way across to Brandon. If you made that into a rectangle, the tabernacle would fit in. We'd have to move our roof up a little bit. But this is not an enormous structure. Right, like so, you, our minds, I think, a lot of times fill in. Right, if it's awesome, then it's huge, right? And it would be ten times the size of our church building. No, no, you you'd fit this tabernacle here, about fifteen feet wide, forty-five feet long. The actual holy of holies was about uh, it was a fifteen-foot cube or so, and it's and it's made. God gives instructions, and we read them here this morning that there are these layers of tent fabric, really. I mean, they're beautiful and they're ornate, but God is making a tent, right? Some of your kids in your home will take two couches and put them, you know, kind of with their backs facing each other and then put blankets over the top. And that's a fun way to do. Kids, have you done this before? Yes. Yes. These have been uh, constructed in my home in recent months. Yeah. Well, so they've got these big pieces of fabric and obviously they're cut to made to length and then stitched together and, and, and uh, clasped together. That first, that first layer is a, is a beautifully um, uh, woven linen with, with purple and blue, beautiful ornamentation uh, sewn in with cherubim sewn into it. And then over that would be a, something that the Bible describes as goat hair. It was probably like a wool structure or a wool fabric or a felt kind of fabric. Over that were tanned ram skins. And then over that were some kind of very weather-resistant animal hides. The, these were all held together with loops and clasps. And this structure has poles, poles made of acacia wood and then covered in gold, right? I mean, it, it's really not that dissimilar than the kind of tents, I mean, it's very different than the kind of tent you and I would use, but we have fabric and we have poles, and these have fabric, and this one, this one has fabric, and this one has poles, and it would have been be- just beautifully decorated, but it was, a, it was a mobile structure. It was made to be taken down and 
travel, who travel throughout the wilderness with God's people. Imagine putting together a tent with only these written instructions, if this is all you have. But like I said earlier, God, in verse 30, makes it clear that Moses had been shown something there on the mountain. And so Moses has some mental image, and he has these words from God, and Moses builds and has God's men build this tent, this tabernacle. We've been talking about the significance of the furniture in the tabernacle through the last few weeks, and we've actually still got a couple of items. I'm just handling it as the Scripture uh, brings, brings them up. We're going to continue to talk about the altar of incense and the, the, sac- the, 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 um, the where you offer your sacrifices, the altar, yep, hard word, the altar, the, the labor uh, by which they would cleanse themselves. We're going to talk about those in the future. But this morning, we're just talking about this, this tabernacle structure. And we're not going to study it just so that we know better Bible trivia, right? Now, many of you are like, cool. It's not quite as big as I thought. But wait, there's more. But we're not just learning it so that we can learn uh, cool things. One, one Bible scholar says the tabernacle was a microcosm of the universe. Inside was heaven. Outside was earth with God at the center of it all. One, the, the same Bible scholar goes on to say, uh, Philip Graham Ryken goes on to say, as the Israelites thought about the tabernacle and its meaning, they were confronted with a hard reality. Think about this. I've already alluded to it this morning. Think about no trespassing signs. The people of Israel were confronted with a hard reality. Most of them, the overwhelming majority of them, weren't allowed to go inside. They could see it. They knew that God had his dwelling in there, but they never even had a chance to see past the door, let alone go inside and meet with God. Everything was concealed under layers of fabric. John McKay, Bible commentator, says, The description of the tabernacle leaves one lasting impression, that of the number of coverings and entrance curtains. Though Israel had this tremendous privilege of divine presence in their midst, there was to be no doubt that he is holy and that access to him was no easy matter. Even though his palace and his temple were right there at the center of the camp, right? Imagine imagine that you're some kind of outsider, non-Jew that uh, is, is there in the wilderness and you come upon this enormous encampment of people and you just maybe you strike conversation up with one of the, the Israelites that's there on the outside of the camp and you start talking with them and you find out, oh, this, okay, you guys are doing some kind of crazy, weird spiritual pilgrimage that I don't know anything about. That's interesting. And, oh, your, your God, your God is actually with you? Your God dwells with you? Well, and he's, and he's in the center of your camp? Okay, so imagine that I'm some non-Israelite and I'm talking to you, the Israelite. Here's my next question. Let's go see him. That's cool. Let's go see your God. To which the Israelite would have to say, no, 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 we, we can't go, we can't go into, right into his presence. Because brothers and sisters, we read something in verse 31 that was more significant than we may realize just in our normal Bible reading through the book of Exodus. Verse 31 describes a piece of this tent that's being built that we're very used to. We're used to this holy of holies and holy place. We're used to that divide. But think about when you're receiving those instructions from God and God says, now where I'm actually going to dwell, I want you to build something that keeps people out. And for, for a moment, maybe you're Moses and you're thinking, but I thought the point, I thought your whole point was that you were coming, you were coming to dwell with us. Like, I, I understand why we would make you a tent so that you have a place to keep yourself out of the weather. But hold on, you're saying that within that tent, there's a place that you want me to build for you and where your presence, this, this um, altar is going to be, uh, uh, the, the altar of the covenant is going to be in there, but there's going to be a veil and it's not a curtain. It doesn't have a divide in the center of it for us to be able to walk through easily. We are able to get through it once a year. I'm going to talk about that more in a moment, but you're asking me to build this, this, this 
um, this blockade. Now we're being told that we're to build a veil, and even at the very opening of the holy place, there's actually a screen. Number two, we learn that God is actually separated by a veil. What, what is the purpose of a veil, and what is the purpose of a screen? I've already talked about this a little bit. It's to conceal or to hide or to limit or to close off. God dwells in the midst of his people, but he is also separated from them because they are sinners. See, God has a veil built between himself and his people for the good of his people. Because to be in the presence of God in their sinful condition would mean death, punishment, destruction. And so God in his kindness and God in his wisdom actually has this veil construction constructed. At the end of the video we watched, um, the, the commentator mentioned the idea of uh, the answers to many of the questions in the book of Exodus are going to come to us in the book of Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus, there are laws and laws and laws on top of laws. And, and constantly there's a theme throughout that talks about when this happens, when you do this, when you experience this, you are considered impure. You're, you're, you're considered unholy until appropriate sacrifices are made or until a certain number of days go by. And brothers and sisters, when you read through the book of Leviticus, something interesting uh, Last year, or maybe the year before, when I was reading through the book of Leviticus, something struck me that I hadn't realized before, and it's this. Most of the people, most of the time, were either personally or someone right immediately in their home were in a state of unholiness and impurity. It wasn't like on rare occasions you would experience something that would make you impure, there were all like you would accidentally touch an unclean thing or because of the, you know, the um, the uh, just the, the I don't want to go into the detail of like everything that makes you impure. But you read through the book of Leviticus and there's all kind of very specific ways in which you your body physically is made impure. And so like the people of Israel are, are pretty consistently living in a state of unholiness or, or impurity. There's there are reasons why they can't march just right into the presence of God. And because they were impure, they weren't allowed. And there was a screen protecting them and separating them from the holy place. There was a veil separating the people and the priests from the holy place. And this, this veil, this veil was significant. The Jewish Talmud indicates that this, this veil was likely four inches thick. Some, some, uh, some uh, ancient historians have described it as potentially as thick as a man's hand. This is not a bed sheet. This is not a heavy quilt like Miss Norma would make. Th- this, is, this is as close as you can get to being a wall made out of fabric as you're going to get. I've read different descriptions. Jerry and I talked about it some this week. I mean, these, these, uh, these furniture, uh, these curtains and fabrics are thousands of pounds. I read one commentator that said that it would take 100 priests to put this curtain up and to take it down. This was, an in, this was not, right? I mean, again, we're talking in the thing that would fit here in this building, and yet there was this enormously thick, heavy, significant veil, this curtain. God is holy and just and righteous, and for the protection of his people, there was a veil separating the presence of God from the people. And remember what was embroidered on the veil? You remember what what angelic beings were embroidered there? Cherubim were. And you may remember from er earlier uh, sermons we've been talking about the significance of the cherubim, right? When, When Adam and Eve were sent out of the Garden of Eden, God appointed cherubim to guard the way so that the unholy people could not make their way back into the holy presence of God. And here on these curtains are cherubim signifying and indicating unholy people. This is a guarded place. You may not just march into the presence of a holy God. Again, Philip Graham Ryken says, this was all designed to show the supreme holiness of God. God is pure in his majesty and pristine in his righteousness. And he is also just which means that his holiness requires him to punish 
sin. Therefore, we need to be careful how we approach him. He is still the holy God who demands perfect obedience and the just God who punishes sin. He is, listen to this, I love this. This line captured my attention uh, for a significant amount of time this week. He is as awesome today as he was in the day of Moses. Brothers and sisters, we do not worship a different God than the God who was having this veil built. I, I am, I am uh, terrified might be the right word. It, I don't mean for it to sound um, uh, exaggerated. Brothers and sisters, I don't think we view God properly. I think for, for many, for many people, we think of God as just a generally nice guy. I think many of us think of God as just like a perfected version of ourselves. Most of us think pretty highly of ourselves. We think we're pretty nice people. And God just has, God's like me with the bugs worked out, with the kinks worked out. Or maybe, maybe God's just kind of a genie when I'm in real trouble. I can kind of go to him and he'll get me, he'll, he'll bail me out. Or God is my, you know, people have emotional support animals. God's my emotional support deity, right? And like I kind of have him because I got most of it taken care of, but every now and then I struggle a little bit. And so I've got an emotional support deity to kind of help me through life. Or with the songs that we sing and the way that we think and the t-shirts that we wear, you might even get the idea that God's just your boyfriend. And brothers and sisters, God is absolutely loving and kind and gentle and gracious and merciful. But he is a God who has to protect you from himself not because he is random and arbitrary, not because he is mean and unkind, because you and I are unholy. And if he doesn't protect you from himself, you will be destroyed. So he, so he protects you from himself with this, with this veil. Brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm going to try to, th- this drawing this helped me this week. I my brain works differently. Well, my brain doesn't always work, but it works differently than most people's. And it, I found uh, drawing a couple things on this board um, helped me a little bit this week, okay? So Mount Sinai, Acts chapter, uh, Ex- Exodus chapter 19, Mount Sinai, and God's people walk, and there's the, the mountain of God. So I'm going to represent God as an enormous mountain. I'm going to try to kind of uh, represent him as, you know, just this enormous mountain range. Uh, this huge mountain of God, right? And God is, is this huge, significant, and God is, um, God is loving, yes, and he is also just, right? So he's this, he's, um, the people of Israel get to see this enormous, terrifying display of who God is. And so down here at the bottom, that's, that's one of the Israelites. That's, that's me and you. This is an appropriate way for us to think about God. That God is, and God is magni- magnificent. And my life is affected by the gravitational reality, the significance of who God is. But brothers and sisters, unfortunately, we often think of God like this. That, that's me and you, and that's God. And, and I, I'm living my life, and I'm going to add me a little bit of God here and there where I need it, right? So, like, I probably need God a couple times a month, right? I might need God at family devotions every now and then. Can everybody see this? It's really great artwork. It's just a huge picture of you. And then like a little nothing speck of God out in the corner. And like he catches your attention maybe a little bit every now and then. Like a spot on your windshield when you're driving around. Brothers and sisters, we're not living. This is terrible artwork and I don't apologize. Um, uh, we don't. This is. These, this, 
depiction falls infinitely short because God is so much significantly bigger and better uh, and more impressive than that. But instead of living life with, the, with the, this enormous awareness of who God is, we kind of are living our lives the way that we want to live our lives. And then when it's convenient for us, we add the genie, the support deity, the boyfriend God to a little bit of our lives. And brothers and sisters, we make a mockery of who God is by the way that we think about him. He is not a constant thought in our lives. We don't wake up thinking about him and go to bed thinking about him. And brothers and sisters, we live out of our thoughts. We live out of our minds. Our actions are motivated and flow out. The Bible says out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. So out of your heart, out of your your mind, I'm going to say that those are connected here for for the purposes that we're discussing here this morning, is where we live. We live out of those things. And so the things that you say and the things that you do, they are evidence of what you actually think and what you actually believe. And I don't need you to tell me what you believe. I know what you believe. I can watch you. I can see what's real. I'm not saying that I'm your judge. Others can see what is real, what is affecting your life. Brothers and sisters, the people of Israel here have a God that they've seen on Mount Sinai. And like the video depicted for us, and as we've seen here uh, in the book of Exodus, um, Moses goes up onto the mountain and the people, when Moses comes back down, the people say, no, we don't want to go to him. He's scary. You go for us. They realize how magnificent God is. It's the, brothers and sisters, it's the same God that you and I worship and pray to and bow our knee to today. There's not a different God. We act like there's a different deity for New Testament believers, right? Jesus, meek and mild, like long hair, white skin, blue eyes, and he's holding a lamb, right? And he wouldn't ever hurt anyone. I love the line from the Chronicles of Narnia where the, uh, the children are asking Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan the lion, and they say, is he safe? And the beavers kind of laugh. Of course not, child. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. Is God safe? Is God tame? God is neither safe nor tame, but he is good. And that goodness evidences itself both in love and in justice. So don't just add a little bit of God to your life. Orient your life around the awesome, weighty magnificence that is him. Don't just go to church some. Live all day, every day, in the gravity of who God is. Don't just go to church on Easter Sunday or Christmas. What an absolute mockery of who God is. I struggle. I was talking with Will about this this morning. And you can pray for your pastor, because uh, I do. I, and I'm, I'll, 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 I'll be okay on Easter Sunday. But I struggle, struggle sometimes on Easter Sunday, because I think there's going to be a bunch of people here today. Why, like, why are they here today? Here's why many, and I, can't, I, don't have any, I don't have any singular person in mind. And don't worry, you're all here two Sundays before Easter, so it doesn't apply to any of you. You're all off the hook, right? I'm inclined to think that people who come to church on Easter Sunday are doing this. I live my life. It's basically a good thing to add some religion. That happy news part of the Christian story about, like, Jesus coming out of the grave, and apparently it has something to do with chocolate and bunnies as well. Like, I'm not sure how that's part of the story, but, you know, apparently that's part of the story as well. And so, like, I'm going to go do that thing. That's a a good thing to do. I'm going to add me some Jesus to my life. They're not living. If you live with this kind of mentality, if you live with that kind of mindset, brothers and sisters, Easter Sunday, Christmas Sunday, Wednesday night, Tuesday morning, Tuesday night, Tuesday lunch, right? It's all day, every day, living in the light of this magnificent, awesome God. Brothers and sisters, don't mock who God is by only coming to church on Sunday. You're more consistent to skip Easter Sunday than to come and make a mockery. Again, it's, you can tell someone else that I said that. I won't, and I won't say that on Easter Sunday, okay? I won't be, I don't think I will anyway. So we've got a big mountain God who has smoke and fire and, uh, and is just, who comes and lives with his people. So who, who gets to go see him? Uh, who does get to go see him? Because now I'm kind of thinking, well, if he's going to be that way, fine. Uh, I'll leave him alone. 
I'll go find a different God. Psalm 51, David asks the same question, who will ascend to the Lord? And he answers his question, he whose walk is blameless. This is Psalm 51 if you want to look at it. Psalm 51, he whose way is blameless. He who does what is righteous. Who speaks the truth from his heart. He has no slander in his tongue. Who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man. He who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord. He who keeps his oaths even when it hurts. He who lends his money without usury and does not accept the bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. So David is answering the question, who gets to go see God? Listen, here's the good news. Who gets to go see God? Everyone who's perfect. Oh man, shoot. Right? There's, that's not good news either, right? Because I'm looking at a room full of people, right? And every moment I look in the mirror, I'm looking at someone who doesn't do these things and actively does the opposite of these things with scary consistency. But this guy does. This guy does. The guy in Psalm 51 gets to go into the presence of God. He will never be shaken. So the perfect person gets to go, but we aren't perfect. And so since we aren't perfect, a sacrifice has to be made. Again, draw your attention, draw your thoughts to this curtained camping structure. And there's a veil separating the holiest place from the holy place. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood of a sacrificial lamb and he would go in and offer a sacrifice. And the initial sacrifice that he was offering was for whom? Yeah, for himself. He's got to go in, right, and hit reset, hit the clear all button for himself. And then he offers a sacrifice for all the people of God the Israelite nation. He offers a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice, right? And we've talked about that a few weeks ago. That blood sprinkled on this beautiful, golden, magnificent uh, altar of the covenant, right? He sprinkles blood all over it, offering a sacrifice for the sins of others. And over years and years and decades and scores of decades and hundreds of years and thousands of years, this is what happens. The people of Israel have this veiled access to God, this limited access of God. One guy gets to do it once a year, go in and, and, and kind of refresh, but we don't get to just march into the presence of God. The Israelites didn't just get to march into the presence of God until, until the Psalm 51 man actually showed up. 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who was born of a woman, so he was 100% man, but he was also 100% God. That's Bible math, right? 100% plus 100% equals 100%. The God-man, Jesus Christ, shows up, and he lives the perfect life that you and I were supposed to live, but we failed to. Honor your father and mother. I failed don't tell a lie, I failed. Don't commit adultery, I've done it in my heart. Don't kill, I've murdered all sorts of people through anger in my heart. I've broken all of those laws, all of those wonderful instructions from God. I broke them all, and you've broken them all. And Jesus comes and he keeps all of them perfectly. He honors his father and mother. He never commits adultery. He never lies. He never steals. He remembers the Sabbath day and he keeps it holy. He has no other gods before the one true God. Jesus comes and he lives the perfect life. And then he goes to the cross and he is sacrificed. His blood is shed for you. And there's something that happens in that moment. In the book of Matthew and in the book of Mark, we read, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Jesus dies. Jesus lives for you, and Jesus dies for you. But there is a small line immediately following what I just read that takes us back to Exodus chapter 26. Some of you already know what this is. It says this. At that moment, 
the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's like the best um, vandalism in the universe, right? Like, here is a priceless piece of fabric. Here is something that is in someone's house. It's in a temple. It's in God's house. And from top to bottom, this enormous, right? I mean, again, we don't know exactly, but many believe this to be a very thick piece of fabric. And if humans are going to tear it, you got to go from bottom to top. You can't get up 15 feet. This is a really hard thing to do. And it's torn from top. What's the significance? Why is it in God's plan that when Jesus dies in that moment, this veil is rent asunder, right? That's good King James language there. Is torn in two. Why does this happen? This thick, heavy curtain is miraculously torn from top to bottom. What's going on here? Here's what's going on here. Jesus, in this moment, like he's just fulfilling everything. He's fulfilling everything. He's fixing and fulfilling everything. Jesus the Bible describes that he is, he came and tabernacled, the, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the tabernacle. His body is being rent. His body is described as the veil. His blood is the sacrifice. He is the high priest. Jesus is fulfilling everything right here. And in this moment, Jesus' sacrifice is not like the sacrifice of bulls and goats that the high priest would come and sprinkle on the altar once a year. Jesus comes and with absolute total finality, with his own blood, brings a sacrifice to God, and that sacrifice is the final sacrifice. And in that moment, Jesus rends the veil. This physical curtain veil thing is torn in two, making it abundantly clear that you and I, with the priesthood of the individual believer, can now, because of that sacrifice, march straight into the presence of God. Hallelujah. Jesus does this. Hebrews, you got to know this. Take, take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews. We're going to look at some verses in Hebrews chapter 9 and then Hebrews chapter 10. And then we're going to celebrate all of this stuff with the Lord's Supper. If you're visiting with us, yeah, I always preach this long. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry, actually, but we do, I do tend to get carried away. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of whose blood? His own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Jump down to verse 24. Listen, this, this is not, um, I'm not like wondering what happened here. In reality, well, let me read the verse. Verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. What are the holy places made with hands? This tabernacle. This tabernacle is the holy place made with hands. A wonderful place. A place that all Israel knew. That's not where Jesus went to make the sacrifice. These are copies of the true things. But where did Jesus go? But into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus goes into the presence of God on our behalf and makes this final sub, uh, uh, sacrifice for the sins of God's people. Listen, uh, I rem many of you will remember when Pastor Brian preached the book of Hebrews, he used the illustration and he said this, this will forever be in my mind. He said, Jesus is our backstage pass. You remember that? He said, Jesus is our backstage pass, right? You go to a concert, you go to an event, you go to a performance, and, and like you don't get to just walk into the back and visit with the band or the performer or whomever. But if you know someone, you might be able, they might be your backstage pass to get you in. Years ago, I had the privilege, um, I've gone to several, um, many of you are familiar with uh, the pastor and author, uh, Pastor um, John MacArthur, and he holds an annual pastor's conference every year. And there's, I think, three or 4,000 pastors that are at this thing. And, and Pastor John is a very famous pastor and pastors a very large church, written a lot of books. And I mean, there's literally security guys kind of watching out for him that whole time. And you, don't, you can't walk back into the offices and you sure can't walk back into his office. But my buddy, buddy Adam Bailey, who worked there, could. And so Adam took me back 
And, and like as we're going through, Adam whispers over his shoulder to the guys that were passing along the hallway, hey, he's with me. Hey, he's with me. And we walked all the way back into the personal office of Pastor John MacArthur. Brothers and sisters, who cares? Jesus goes to God with you and says, he's with me. She's with me. When we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, we are described as being in him. And so Jesus goes before God the Father. Jesus is God. Jesus goes before God the Father with this sacrifice. And Jesus says to God the Father, he's with me. She's with me. They're with me. And because of him, we can march boldly into the holiest place because the sacrifice has been made. Jesus is your backstage pass. Jesus gets you to God. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, no one comes to the Father except how? Except through me. Yeah, that's exactly right. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll end with this, or we'll transition to our Lord's Supper time together with this. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? Read those next five words. By the blood of Jesus. I'm going to read that again, and then I want you to say by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, rent, it's a picture, open for us, rent open for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to one another in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, etc., etc. And then you go down to verse 24 um, and verse 25. That's stuff that Matt's been covering in Sunday school over the last few weeks. Brothers and sisters, all of this is real. We fellowship with each other. We have all of these experiences because Jesus went before, and now we have confidence. I can't just, I can't just walk into John MacArthur's study. I can't just go backstage uh, at, a, at a concert unless I know the right person. Do you know the right person? And if you do, Although your sins may be many, they will be made white as snow, right? Many of you have a lot of baggage in your past. Did you know that if you are in Christ, you can walk boldly and confidently into the presence of your King Jesus because Jesus has said, he's with me, she's with me. Father, please use these glorious truths this morning, even as we celebrate together um, your, your uh, torn veil, the, 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 the body of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.